Well, let's open our Bibles again today to our study text. I'm sure everybody knows right where we're going to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, well, today is not a part two necessarily, but it certainly is the next step in where we were studying last week as we concluded. Well, last week's study, we examined briefly a spiritual understanding, if you will, of verse number 11. Now, Mark chapter number 11, <clears throat> excuse me, and verse number 11 says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. It serves as a reminder to us of a couple of things. First, we are, as Jesus has stated, the temple of God in which the Spirit of God dwells, if, in fact, we have accepted Christ as our personal Savior. And because we are not our own, but we were, in fact, bought with the price of Christ's blood, willingly and freely shed for us, that same Jesus has every right to enter and to look upon all things in our heart and in our life. Now we sometimes, as we mentioned last week, try to lock away certain areas that we might be ashamed of or that we don't think really matters. Well, does it really matter if I you know, just said a little white line to some telemarketer on the phone? Well, it matters to your integrity. But the truth is, every part of us Every part of our life and person does matter to Jesus. And it does matter as it relates to our ability to be holy as God is holy. It is a foolish notion to think that we can hide anything from the one who designed and created every part of our body, soul, and spirit. So the sooner that we, and I say we corporately, I don't have any compunction to call out anyone except maybe I'll put my name in there, but the sooner that we stop putting so much effort into trying to keep things from God, the sooner we'll find that that effort can be put to greater use as we do the work in which God has called us to serve. Now, we are also reminded last week how seriously God views his temple. That's you and me. As we heard from Paul's letter to, uh, to the Corinthians that if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, our study today shows us and it kind of expands really on that thought of the supremacy and the authority of Christ, not only over his temple, his house of worship, but over all of his creation. So follow along with me in your Bibles. I'm sure that you're there at Mark chapter 11. As I'll read today's study text, beginning again in verse number 11 for, for a reminder. And let's see, verse number 11 once again says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, 
And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when the even was come, in verse 19, he went out of the city. So from our examination and study today, just a couple of main points that we want to look at. First, the evaluation and the effect. The evaluation and the effect. For those that are taking notes, if you wanted the title for today's message, I have titled it, Ready or Not. Ready or Not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as we come before you, Lord, we come humbly acknowledging that, Father, you have given everything for us. You have given everything for these sinners whom you have, by your grace, saved and elevated to eternal life with you. Oh God, forgive us where we fall short. Open our hearts and our understanding today, Lord. Help us to see in the mirror of your word those things that apply to us, and may your spirit have full control today. Lord God, may we hear what you have for each one of us to hear from your word today. God, give us the courage to accept it as you see fit. And God, we ask it now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the evaluation. Clearly, we see from these first few verses of our text today, and of course remembering last week as we've reviewed it for just a moment, Jesus came to these places. He came into Jerusalem, he came into the temple, and he saw things. He looked around about, upon all things. He saw things. First the temple, and then also in our first few verses, he saw as he was coming a fig tree afar off, having leaves. Now we'll get to these in just a moment. But I also want to look at something this morning, or this afternoon rather, that is not so clearly spelled out in the text of these verses. I'm not trying to add anything to the Word of God, but let's see what isn't necessarily clearly spelled out. Recall, if you will, that Jesus had just entered the city with a great, albeit rather humble, fanfare. You recall from last week it was such a procession because Jesus was sitting upon the colt and all the people were strawing clothes and tree branches in the way and they were shouting Hosanna and it was a great procession as he came into the city. It was such a great procession, if you will, that according to Matthew's record in chapter 21 and verse 10, the Bible says that all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? 
Now those who were familiar with Zechariah's prophecy that we looked at last week of the entering of, into the holy city on a cult, this king that was going to enter on a cult should have immediately thought that if this was the king that they were expecting, if the king was coming, then they might, might want to make sure that things in the city and, and things in the temple were, were set in order suitable for a king. Especially as he came and looked upon all things. This is the prophetic king. Why are we not scrambling to make sure that things look great? And get things tidied up. Get things in order for the king whom we've been looking for for so long. But here I wonder though. As again, Matthew's record says that when they asked who is this, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now we know from Scripture that his fame had gone far and wide very quickly. So here I have to wonder whether their response to the question of who is this caused and led to maybe a sort of dismissal of Jesus as this expected king. Oh, that's Jesus? At least by those with positions of authority and leadership, oh, that's that Jesus. We don't like him because he opposes what we're doing. Certainly, the religious leadership, you know who the religious leadership was? That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Certainly, they did not want to acknowledge or ascribe any authority to this man Jesus as that would have completely countermanded their own sense of authority and command that they tried to exercise over the people. Remember how the Pharisees kind of lorded over the people. And they expected things of the people that they themselves were not willing to do. The Bible says that they wouldn't lift a finger to do the things that they expected. So it would seem then that as Jesus entered the temple, after a great procession, as we've read it today, there it would seem that there was not the excitement and the rejoicing as was just seen in that procession. Evidently, it was a rather nonchalant, non-incident in the place where Jesus should have been most joyously welcomed. It was the temple. It was the religious house. And here Jesus, the great teacher, has entered. Oh, it's him. Eh, whatever. It should have been a house of prayer and worship that was exceedingly joyful, but it was not. And Mark records that after Jesus came into the temple and looked about upon all things, he, marked, he, he records that the eventide was come and Jesus went out with the twelve. Well, that was about as anticlimactic as possible. He came, he saw, he left. Hmm. This was the very first part, I believe, of Jesus' evaluation, if you will, of God's chosen people as he came into the place where God chose to put his name there. 
it kind of inspires the question, I think. How is Jesus' evaluation of his temple here? Has Jesus entered and looked around upon all things in this temple? And has he just seen and walked off? Are we of the same nonchalance and indifference in our daily walk with Christ? He is the king. Has he come into the temple and are we joyous? Are we excited that Jesus is here with me? Jesus is walking beside me and I'm going to share that with other people. Or are we, you know, I'm glad that I'm saved. Yep, that's it. <laughs> How about when we gather in God's house of prayer and worship? Is there an excitement and a joy about spending time with the Lord? Or do we kind of meander in as it's convenient? And, you know, if we're a few minutes late, eh, it's not a big deal. They're just singing songs. That's not comfortable. That's not comfortable for me. And I'm not comfortable saying those words. But that's the truth of the Word of God. This is the house of God. This is where we gather to worship God. And worship Jesus Christ, the one who died for me and for you. And do we come in with an indifference? And do we come in? Eh, I'm a few minutes late. It's okay. They're Baptists. It's all right. He'll just preach a little longer and I won't miss too much. It's not about the man in the pulpit. It's about... The Savior in our heart. We ought to be gathering with such excitement to be here with the Lord, not to be here to hear how everybody else is weak. Those are great. I love the testimony time. That's fantastic. That's not why we're here. That's an added bonus. But you see, when we walk in, we're a few minutes late. When we walk in, just kind of nonchalantly and indifferent, that's called complacency. That's a great big C word, complacency. And you know what? Complacency goes against the will of God. Because complacency focuses more upon ourselves than on always being at the ready and on time for the Lord to work. You remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Bartimaeus, the blind man just outside of Jericho. Bartimaeus, when the Lord called, he stopped and he called for Bartimaeus. When the Lord called Bartimaeus wasted no time. The Bible says he cast away his garments and he, buddy, he was there. The Lord called, I'm going to be there. He came immediately and without anything possibly causing him to miss any time with Jesus. How much time did he have? He didn't know. But he had that moment. How much time do we have to gather together on a Sunday morning? I don't know. But we have this moment. Every single day, every single Sunday that comes, buddy, we ought to be excited. Yes, we still have a Sunday. I get to go to the house of God, and I get to talk with my Lord. Unfortunately, there is a complacency. The sad truth is, that's why there's empty pews, not just here. That's why there's empty pews in fundamental Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches all around this land and all around the world, because the complacency. Bartimaeus wasted no time. He wanted to make sure that he had his time with the Lord. Friends, we ought to be so diligent, ought we not? Amen. Secondly, let's get back to our text. Secondly, in verses 12 and 13, look at what the Bible says. It says, On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Now I'm sure that you've heard about fig trees. You've heard messages about fig trees and how a fig tree grows and how the fruit of a fig tree grows. I'm sure that you've heard it at least once or twice. But it's too important to listen for us to skip over. So while you may have heard it, we're going to talk about it just a little bit here again today because there's an application that we need to understand. Now while some variants of fig trees follow what we might consider a traditionally thought process of first comes the leaf, then comes the flower, then comes the fruit, kind of like an apple tree, right? First comes the leaf, then comes the flower, then comes the fruit. Well, fig trees, some of them, I suppose, might follow that thought process, that growth process. But by and large, fig trees are different. Most species or most variants of fig trees will begin to grow the fruit at the very same time that the leaf starts to grow. But the leaves don't open up and become broad until the fruit is ready to ripen or it's already ripe. Then the fig leaf opens up to help complete that ripening process, that maturing process. So, Jesus, in our text, seeing the fig tree in full leaf, was absolutely right to expect that there ought to be a whole bunch of fig fruit on that tree. And it should be ready for harvest. And yet, when he got there, there was nothing of substance behind the leaves. It was perhaps, maybe it was a young fig tree, maybe it was an immature fig tree, maybe you know, there's some trees that don't fruit the first couple of years, so maybe that was the case. But here's the truth of it. I don't believe that Jesus would have been misled by the appearances of immaturity. Everything in Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So I have to appreciate this account as teaching how the Christian life should be. He uses a fig tree as a metaphor for the Christian life. Just as the fruit begins to grow at the same time the leaf begins to grow and mature, when one accepts Christ, the primary commission that we find in the Word of God is to go and tell others of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Go and tell others how you have been saved. Go and tell others of the goodness of God to give you a Savior in that person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait until you go to college. You don't have to go get a Bible degree. You don't have to wait until you're fully mature in your Christianity to start telling others. All the commission tells us is to go and tell others of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and that any and all who believe have the very power to receive Christ and to become a child of God with eternal life in heaven. Nowhere do I find that the believer has to attain to a certain level of knowledge before they can begin bearing fruit. In fact, knowledge, knowledge I think is kind of like the fig leaf. Uh, okay, where's he going with that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16, and then again in verse 20, Ye shall know them by their fruits, not know them 
by their leaves. Now, it is good to have knowledge, and it's good to strive for knowledge. And the Bible talks about striving for mastery. It is good to have knowledge, but like the fig leaf, the knowledge should only be opened up and on full display to help ripen the fruit that is already being grown. The knowledge is there to help understand how God works in the life of a Christian. The knowledge ought not to be there to say, look at how much brains I've got. I am a very smart guy in this thing called the Bible. Yeah, but what does it say? I don't know. What does it mean? I don't know, but I can tell you what it says. Right? The knowledge ought not to be what people see. Jesus said you shall know them by their fruits. The Pharisees, as we were talking about in the scripture here, the Pharisees had much knowledge. You couldn't become a Pharisee unless you had a whole lot of learning. The Pharisees had much knowledge, and they loved to have that knowledge on full display for all to see and to ooh and to ah about how broad their, you know, their borders on their garments were and how tall their hats were on their heads and, and how many, I don't know, rings and bells and whistles they all had. They loved to show off how much knowledge they had. Could the Pharisees tell you how to get saved? No. The Pharisees didn't know how it manifests in reality in a life of a person that accepts Christ. They were against Christ. They were all about the traditions of men. The Pharisees had much knowledge and they loved to have it on full display. But what substance did they have? Now verse 13 in our text does say as we get back to it, the verse 13 says the time of figs was not yet. But I will implore you to examine that phrase for just a moment. In this particular Bible, and I believe in yours as well, the word yet is likely italicized. Oh, well that's kind of funny. Well that's just for emphasis, right? Well, kind of, but it was really added by the translators for clarity. Now, saying that, we must not understand it because it is a good addition. God has preserved it that way. Many would read this as, well, the time of figs was not yet, meaning that it was too early for the fruit. It was too early for the figs. So how could he possibly expect it to be figs? It wasn't there yet. But the word yet is also used in the thought of being sustained. So don't misunderstand. In other words, the time of figs was not sustained. It wasn't still there. The time of figs had passed. The fruit is gone. But the leaves are all there saying, look at how beautiful I am. I'm in full sway in the sun. It's as if saying that the time of the figs was already gone. The time of the figs was not still there. This would be like Paul's charge to us to be careful about how we build upon the foundation of Christ. Do you remember from Corinthians how he talks about building precious stones and gold and things, but wood, hay, and stubble? Those things will not survive the trials by fire that will come. So, 
Christian. Our God, well, I don't know, this ought not to be a newsflash, but our God is a jealous God and a consuming fire. That's what the Bible tells us. He does not want us using the talents and the resources that he has given us for our own pleasures and satisfactions. He's provided us with bountiful resources and even liberties in our salvation so that we are enabled to share and to love and to teach that Jesus Christ is the answer. Not what you might find on the news. Not, not, not what some psychiatrist can help you with. I don't know. Jesus Christ is the answer. So we have to ask the question again. What is Jesus' evaluation of our temple? Are we excited about Christ? And are we focused on Christ? And are we, oh, are, are we just passionate about Christ? Which brings us to the second point, the effect. Now, as we go through this first, we see the effect of Jesus' evaluation of the boastful fig tree in verse number 14. Jesus answered and said unto the tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He cursed it. And the disciples heard it in verse 14. Now one might be tempted to think that this was an awful harsh condemnation of this poor tree. I mean, my goodness, maybe it was a bad year. Maybe it didn't have enough water. Maybe someone else picked all the figs already. We could go on and on making excuses about why Jesus was so unfair in his condemnation. Don't we find that in our society today? Well, that's just not fair that God would send somebody to hell. <laughs> Except that we should be reminded that John chapter 1 tells us that all things were made by Jesus and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So... We must understand that Jesus knew all about this specific fig tree. He knows all about you and me and all of our life. And he knew all about the reason that this tree did not bear fruit. So his condemnation was not unfair. It was completely just because of his knowledge of the tree. But again, we must know that there is a spiritual application to this. If a soul has no desire to bear the fruit of righteousness, to exalt the person of Jesus Christ, and to glorify the Father which is in heaven, and if that soul, by the eternal and infinite knowledge of God, will never come to that desire for holiness and godliness, then that soul is, from God's perspective, justifiably condemned for eternity, as was this fig tree. Now, we are not given that understanding about anyone. We are not given that privileged knowledge of how someone may or may not respond to a witness, and rightly so. But therefore... Since we're not given that understanding, we're not given that knowledge, we're also not at liberty to decide who we should or should not witness to or pray for or for how long. Well, they don't look like they're ever going to receive Christ, so I'm not going to pray for them, I'm not going to go talk to them, I'm not going to share a track with them, I'm not going to do anything for them. That's not our decision to make. God says, be a witness. Everywhere and to all people. 
And it's not just for, uh, it is not for us to question God's reasoning. Our focus should simply be as Christ focused to do always that which pleases the Father. What is it that pleases the Father in our life? To witness, to pray, to share, to love, to teach about Jesus Christ. Now these in Jerusalem, oh, as we get back to our text, these in Jerusalem clearly did not have that understanding as we see that they were not doing what pleased God. In verses 15 through 17, look at your Bible again. Jesus and his disciples said they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying them, Is it not written, My house should be called of all nations the house of prayer? But he have made it a den of thieves. Now I suppose that maybe those that were in the temple doing these things, maybe they had convinced themselves that they were doing a good thing based on the Levitical law and the allowances of the Levitical law for those that did not have flocks and herds to bring their sacrifice from, they would oftentimes go and there would be those that are offering to sell them a dove or sell them the turtle or whatever it might be that they had to sacrifice. See, I believe that they convinced themselves that they were doing a good thing for providing the sacrifices required. But the problem was, as these were offering to sell the things needed, they were doing so unrighteously by charging more than the necessary amount so that they could turn a profit. I'm going to get rich off of this. You watch this. Here's, a, here's an opportunity to make some money. And doing so in the house of God. Now once again, rather than hearing what Jesus said about being a sanctuary of worship and acknowledging that they were in the wrong to allow and even sanction such activities, verse 18 of our text says, the scribes and the chief Pharisee, uh, the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. See the tragic reality? The tragic reality is that one might expect a lost soul to be so deceived that they believe that Jesus is only out to ruin their fun. But these in the temple were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the day. But they were so self-righteous, they weren't about to admit that they were wrong. After all, that might mean that they would lose their position or rank or ooh and ah in the eyes of the people. In fact, the only effect that their actions would bring to fruition is their, only, is, is their own eternal life of torment and condemnation. Without coming to Christ, that's the alternative. An eternity in the place called hell of torment and condemnation. So we'll close with the last, one last metaphoric comparison, if you will. Look at verse 19. When the even was come, he went out of the city. The challenge that we're presented here 
is that the even or the evening is coming. For now, we still have time. First, for the lost to accept the risen Christ as Savior and Redeemer. So we must be active in our charge as witness and testimonies of Christ. Second, for us as Christians, the challenge is to use the mirror of the Word of God to see whether our evaluation from God's perspective, as God has outlined, will our evaluation bring a better effect than the example that God has preserved here in the text for us? If there is a sore spot, if we look into the Word of God and we really try to understand it, we pray, if, if we pray the prayer, search me, O God, and see if there be. And we look in the Word of God and all of a sudden something hurts. If there's a sore spot, Jesus is the great healer. Jesus is the great physician that will mend and heal as he has the prescription readily available. We just need to read the label. You know how you go to the doctor, you get a prescription, and there's instructions written on the label? Make sure you only take this once a day, or take it twice a day, or take it with food, or don't take it with food, or don't take it with milk, or whatever the instructions might be. There's instructions on the label. Guess what? We have the instructions! <laughs> I'm not trying to be silly. But if there's a sore spot as we read through the scriptures, we need to go back to the doctor, Dr. Christ, and get the prescription, and get the remedy. We need to read the label, abide by the instructions that God has preserved for us. Are you ready? Or are we not? Pastor. Well, we know we buy a brand new car. You don't do the first thing by opening up the glove compartment, take the manual, and toss it out the window, do you? We need to make sure that we abide by the book. Because this is how we get God's perspective. And in the end, God's perspective is the only perspective that matters. Amen? It's the only way that we're going to see us as God sees us. It's the only way we're going to see how we can be what God wants us to be. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together. And Lord, we thank you for this historical account of the fig tree. And Lord, what a privilege it must have been for the disciples to be present and to learn from everyday life as they walked in that public ministry with Christ. And yet, Lord, we have something far more exciting. We have a completed word, a word that you would have us to have, a word that would guide us and a word that would direct us so that we can, Lord, not waste our time on foolish things, but, Lord, get right to the nitty-gritty and to get serious about the important things, the eternal things. And so, Lord, won't we take seriously the message and the lessons we've heard today and use them for your honor, use them for your glory. And we pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.